0: And now, it gives me great pleasure today to introduce our keynote speaker, President Luke Drury, who is one of our valued contributors. Professor Drury studied experimental physics and pure mathematics at Trinity College Dublin and completed his doctorate in astrophysics at Cambridge University. He subsequently worked at the Max Planck Planck Institute Heidelberg and is currently Director of the School of Cosmic Physics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, which also has a strong tradition of engagement and outreach activities. Professor Drury is the 54th President of the Academy, having been elected to that office in March 2011. We are tremendously honoured that the President has agreed to speak to us today on the subject of his predecessor, the sixth Academy President, Sir William Rowan Hamilton, Mathematician and romantic.
1: Uh, thank you very much, Siobhan. I suppose an obvious question is why choose Hamilton to kick off this lecture theory series? And there's a very simple and obvious answer to that. Hamilton is, in many ways, to Irish science what Joyce is to Irish literature. He is our key figure, the preeminent person who is internationally known and whose global reputation actually is such that in some ways they are not even Irish anymore, they are global figures of international importance. And it was fitting that a few years ago in 2005, the bicentenary of his birth was declared to be the Hamilton year celebrating Irish science. Here is a picture of Hamilton with one of his sons taken around 1845. Uh, Remarkably, I don't think there are any contemporary oil portraits of Hamilton. The the portrait we have outside and the other ones that you see around appear to me to have been painted after his death from photographs. There are quite a significant number of photographs, however, because he was close friends with the Parsons family uh, who were early pioneers in photography. So we are lucky that we actually have a significant record of photographs of Hamilton. Uh, But one has to remember that, of course, this is in the early days of photography. Uh, Exposures had to be very long, so uh, these poor people look a little pained because they have probably been required to sit absolutely still for five minutes while the exposure was being taken. There's also a well-known pencil sketch, uh, which you, in fact, can see outside, uh, showing him presiding as president of the academy. And if you look closely, you will see the chair he's sitting in is, in fact, the chair we still use today, back here. Unfortunately, it's hidden by this podium, but I can see it well. And the mace in front of him is the mace that we still use. So anyone who knows the academy will instantly recognize this as a... Very reasonably accurate record of the president presiding. Here's another photograph. He seems to have moved slightly in this, so his forehead looks a bit blurred. But there he is in middle age. And the the one that uh, most people know is a rather unfortunate picture taken uh, towards the end of his life at 54, where he really looks quite grumpy. Uh, There were. Remarkably, two stamps issued in 1943, uh, presumably at Eamon de Valera's instigation. Remember, this is the middle of the Second World War, or the emergency, to use the local phrase, uh, to commemorate the discovery of Uh, quaternions. They really don't seem to me to be a very good likeness of Hamilton. As far as I can make out, they were copied from the statue that is now outside government buildings. And I don't know who the sculptor was, but he, he didn't really capture Hamilton very well. There were some rather better stamps issued in 2005. It was also the Einstein year, by coincidence, and declared to be the International Year of Physics. So we had a series of stamps. And the bottom one shows quite a good likeness of Hamilton and the fundamental equations defining his quaternions. So that's uh, by way of a bit of introduction. Uh, it's useful perhaps to start with a bit of chronology. Hamilton was born in 1805, almost exactly at midnight between the 3rd and the 4th of August, and to the end of his life he would celebrate either day, whichever was more convenient as his birthday, That shows a, perhaps a certain mathematical attitude to it. In a house in Dominic Street, now unfortunately demolished. But it's um, in terms of current attitudes, it's perhaps interesting to note that he was a Northsider. His father was Archibald Hamilton, a lawyer and estate agent who worked on behalf of the Patriot, Archibald Hamilton Rowan, after whom the Rowan in William Rowan Hamilton comes. Um, the Hamilton, there doesn't appear to be any. A direct family relationship although there has been some speculation about that his mother came from a well-known family of french huguenots the huttons who had a business building coaches in dublin and in fact the uh, queen victoria was very taken with a coach built by the huttons and ordered one for the for buckingham palace and the queen of england still uses the so-called irish coach which was built by the huttons i believe So he had uh, on his mother's side a French and and Scottish ancestry and two Irish grandparents. Uh, So he's certainly half Irish at least, but by education and upbringing, clearly a Dubliner. Uh, The family were not very wealthy, but he had an uncle, James, who ran a diocesan school in in Trim. And at the age of three, he was sent to stay with Uncle James uh, in in Trim, in Talbot's Castle. And uh, Uncle James was clearly a major educational influence on him. He had a strong interest in education, rather unusual theories. We would nowadays, I think, be rather horrified at his attitude to what would be called hothousing. It appears that he would wake... um, the young boy up at three in the morning to start his lessons, and he began drilling him at a very early age in the classical languages. Uh, But it seems to have worked in his case. And it's plausible that Hamilton's habit towards the very end of his life of working extremely hard and writing, writing, and writing can be traced back to the influence of his Uncle James. Here's a photograph which I took a few years ago when the commemorative plaque was unveiled on Talbot's castle, and indeed you can see there uh, David Spearman, one of my predecessors as president, looking on, and you may recognize a few other individuals in the group. There is a widespread myth that Hamilton could speak 13 languages by the age of 13. Uh, This appears in large part because of the notoriously unreliable book by Bell, Men of Mathematics, which repeats the story. Uh, There is certainly no doubt that William Hamilton, Rowan Hamilton was remarkably fluent in the classical languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, from a very early age. This was the main focus of his education with Uncle James, and he he won entrance prizes to Trinity, as we'll see in a minute, for his knowledge of these languages. The family do seem to have been thinking at one point that for the future he might need to be prepared for a career in the East India Company, uh, which would certainly have been a reasonable chance of preferment for a not very well-off middle-class family at the time, and therefore he was given some basic grounding in uh, oriental languages. He certainly had some basic knowledge of classical Persian, Arabic, and he even learned a little Sanskrit, but there is no evidence that he was actually in any sense fluent in these languages beyond having a, a general acquaintance with them and being able, with the aid of a dictionary, to compose a fairly basic text. So certainly he had an impressive linguistic ability, um, but there's no plausible evidence that he spoke 13 languages fluently. And from from a modern perspective, what is interesting is that there is no mention anywhere of him ever showing any interest in the Irish language, which, remember, we're talking here 1805, would still have been spoken by a large part of the population. In later life, he certainly could read, but probably not speak French, German, and probably Italian and there is a record of a continental visitor attempting to converse with him in French and giving up because they could not understand each other's pronunciation. Remarkably, for a person who went on to become our greatest mathematician, arguably our greatest scientist, there is little evidence in the early years of significant mathematical ability. Uh, The earliest surviving letter we have of his is a letter written to his sister, Grace, in 1815, when he was 10 years old. And it it gives an interesting insight into the type of education he was having with his uncle. And with your permission, I will read it. I have for some time been reading Lucian and Terence, the Hebrew Psalter on Sundays, and on Saturdays some Sanskrit, Arabic, and Persian. I read at leisure hours Goldsmith's Animated Nature, and any new history or poetry that falls my way. I like Walter Scott very much. In arithmetic I have got as far as practice, and I have done very near half the first book of Euclid with my uncle. Uh, the, the first half of the first book of Euclid is not actually getting very far into geometry. So, I do the ancient and modern geography of the different countries together. I do the second lesson every morning in the Greek testament, and on Sundays after church go over the scripture lessons of the past week with Doddridge's Notes and Improvements and before church I read Seca on the Catechism, and in the evening, Wells Scripture Geography, a very entertaining book. So it was a really a very old-fashioned, very classical education, very much focused on Latin, Greek, and preparing you for the possibly a career in the church, or as an alternative in the Indian so in the East India Company. Uh, His mother died in 1817 when he was only 12 years old, Uh, but this doesn't seem to have psychologically scarred him too much, perhaps because he had spent so much of his time with his Uncle James, although it's plausible that part of his, uh, I mean, it certainly must have had an influence on him, and his father died a mere two years later in 1819. And he he was left then really as the eldest in the family and had a responsibility felt a responsibility towards his sisters for the rest of his life. In 1818 and 1820, there was a, a young boy called Zira Colburn, an American, who was one of these mathematical prodigies who could do incredible feats of mental arithmetic, and he was being toured around Europe and happened to be in Dublin. Hamilton met him, and this appears to be one event which sparked his interest in arithmetic, and mathematics more generally. And from this point on we see an increasing interest in mathematics. In 1823, aged 18, he comes first in the Trinity entrance examination and wins a special prize in Hebrew, so Uncle James's education has paid off at this point. He goes on to win virtually every prize available in Trinity, and then A year later, he meets a young girl, Catherine Disney, and falls passionately in love with her. And she, in fact, seems also to have fallen in love with uh, William Bowen Hamilton. Now unfortunately, the Disneys were quite a well-off family, and they did not take at all kindly to the idea that Catherine had fallen for a young man with very little money and uncertain prospects, who was still an undergraduate and they promptly forced her to marry a considerably older but wealthy Church of Ireland clergyman, the Reverend Barlow. Uh, This uh, left uh, Hamilton, uh, as you can imagine, quite distraught, and this is where the romantic element of his character starts to come in. Uh, Towards the end of his life, he, he nurtured a deep attachment to Catherine Disney, Quite inappropriate, really, for Victorian society. He did manage to engage in some secret correspondence with her. There's no evidence of serious impropriety, um, but they certainly carried on a correspondence behind both their partners' backs, and this caused the Victorian biographers of Hamilton uh, some difficulty, shall we say. The big breakthrough he had was when. Still an undergraduate, he submitted to the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy his first major work, a paper on systems of rays. And this was such a substantial piece of work and so groundbreaking, and I'll come on to that in a minute, um, that it established his reputation. And remarkably, when the position of Professor of Astronomy became vacant in 1827, he was appointed Professor of Astronomy while still an undergraduate. He had not yet taken his primary degree at this point. And so he, he became Director of Dunsink Observatory. One of the reasons he wanted the position was clearly that it came with the right to reside in Dunsink. And he, he, as I said, did feel responsible for his sisters. And this was one way of getting basically a free accommodation. He stayed as professor of astronomy to the end of his life, and uh, he did all his work in Dunsink actually. Uh, Another key event in 1827 was his first meeting with the poet William Wordsworth. Hamilton's romanticism extended to a deep liking for poetry. uh, Throughout his life, he composed poetry uh, a lot of poetry, a lot of bad poetry actually, um, but he he had a great interest in the romantic poets. He was a personal friend of William Wordsworth, who visited him in Donsig, and indeed Wordsworth had to politely tell him that while his interest in poetry was commendable, as far as actually writing poetry was concerned, he should stick to the day job and <laughs> leave, leave poetry to better poets. Uh, this is a rather nice engraving of Dunsink as it was around 1835. Uh, It really looks much the same nowadays except the cattle are gone, and I'm not quite sure about the three Graces in the lawn. Those are perhaps meant to be Hamilton's sisters. He had a visit, as I said, from Wordsworth in 1829, and the The next key thing really was that through Wordsworth he got introduced to Coleridge, and through Coleridge he got introduced to German idealism and German idealist philosophy. And To the end of his life he had a deep interest in the philosophy of Kant and uh, and its extension then through Coleridge into idealism. Going back to his mathematical work, he had in the meantime continued to improve on his initial work on optics, theory of rays, and this led him in 1832 to make the prediction of conical refraction. Nowadays we would regard this as really not a terribly important discovery, but at the time it caused a sensation, and it's interesting to reflect why this was. I think you have to bear in mind that up to that point, the application of mathematics to physics had essentially unified and explained known phenomena. Uh, Newton, through his theory of gravity and dynamics, had managed to explain Kepler's laws, etc. But there had not been a case up to then in which the mathematical formulation of a physical theory had predicted a totally new and unexpected phenomenon. Nowadays we become almost blasé about this. We, the fact that um, theories in particle physics predicted the existence of the Higgs and then eventually we find the Higgs, we say, OK, well, that's nice, we were expecting it. Um, But it was a totally new idea that by formulating physics in a certain mathematical form, you could actually predict new phenomena. And the discovery of conical refraction caused a sensation throughout 19th century science, and indeed led to William Rowan Hamilton being given a knighthood, the first knighthood ever granted for achievements in science. Uh, Somewhat on the rebound, he married a neighbor's daughter, Helen Bailey, in 1833, uh, still really in secret, hankering after Catherine Disney. This was not a very good idea. I mean, clearly, he married really just because he wanted to be married, rather than because he really loved Helen. Helen was a quite neurotic individual, quite unsuited, really, to looking after Hamilton, And although they seem to have been reasonably happy, it was not a very successful marriage, one has to say. In 1834, he then took his great work on optics and extended it into dynamics. And this is perhaps his greatest achievement, was his General Methods in Dynamics paper of 1834. One of the consequences of his interest in idealism and Kant and Kant's philosophy in particular, was a rather strange idea. Kant had argued that geometry is the science of pure space and is the a priori knowledge we have of spatial extension. Hamilton asked the interesting question, if, if geometry is the science of pure space, then what is algebra, which is the other main branch of mathematics? And he developed the rather strange idea that algebra was the science of pure time in a Kantian sense. Now, I have never been able to work out what he really meant by this, and he himself doesn't seem to have fully understood what it implied. But like many creative individuals, this was the crutch he used to develop his further work in algebra. And it's fairly clear that it was through this strange route of trying to understand algebra, as a science of pure time, that he was ultimately led to his discovery of Proternians. As I mentioned, he was given a knighthood at a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1835. Uh, there's an interesting little side touch to that. I mean, uh, in the 1830s, there was a considerable conflict in in English scientific circles between what was seen as the reactionary and very old-fashioned Royal Society at the time, and a much more progressive group who formed the British Association for the Advancement of Science. This included industrialists and the nouveau riche, and reacted a bit against the more aristocratic and, as they saw it, reactionary Royal Society of the time. Hamilton could certainly have become a Fellow of the Royal Society. He was more than eminently qualified, uh, but he, he seems never to have wanted to join the Royal Society, and he, in fact, was invited on a few occasions and refused. So he clearly allied himself with the more progressive fraction of the British Association, and indeed was instrumental in inviting them to hold a meeting in Dublin at which he was knighted. He was. As Siobhan has mentioned, president of the Royal Irish Academy for many years, an office which he, for a really one for a very abstract thinker and romantic, he seems to have been quite practical as president and had a reasonably good grasp of political realities. So he he was an effective president. Uh, He's of course. Nowadays in Ireland, mainly known for his discovery of quaternions in 1843, we recently commemorated the anniversary of that on October the 16th. Uh, Famously, he was walking in to chair a meeting of the Council of the Academy from Dunsink, and he had for a number of years been trying to find a way of multiplying triples of numbers. He suddenly realised that he couldn't, he could do it if he used four numbers and he scratched the fundamental equations on the stonework of Broom Bridge. I suspect part of this was he had been involved in a rather unpleasant dispute about priority over conical refraction with McCullough, and I think he was. this was one way of being able If If anyone questioned the date, he could bring them back to the bridge and say, look, there it is, I carved it on the stone. <laughs> so I think there was an ulterior motive to carving it. As I said, the marriage was not happy, and he also had a certain fondness for the drink, as we would say, and there was an unfortunate incident in 1846 when uh, the records of the Geological Society uh, record him as being incapacitated. Uh, It appears that he actually was extremely drunk and quite ashamed of himself afterwards, and he, he actually managed to abstain from alcohol for two years after that. Um, but in some ways, his nemesis, Airy, the astronomer royal in Greenwich, uh, then goaded him about it, and he went back. He started drinking again. 1853, Catherine Disney died. Uh, he managed to see her just on her deathbed and presented her with a first edition of his work on quaternions. Whether that had anything to do with it, <laughs> I'm not sure, but it was a strange gesture. And the, in some ways, the high point of his career was then in 1865, uh, just before his death, uh, the newly formed American National Academy of Sciences, which had only been established by Lincoln a few years earlier, uh, had the right to elect foreign associate members. The uh, very first election, the very first foreign associate that the American Academy of Sciences decided to elect and therefore by inference the person they considered to be the most eminent scientist really outside America was William Rowan Hamilton. And he received the notice of his election to the American Academy just a few months before he died in 1865 at age 60, probably from overwork actually as much as anything else. Going back a little bit to his scientific achievements, I, for the benefit of the scientists here, I want to just say a little bit about what he actually did. Uh, It's interesting that it all starts with optics. And the first part of his system of rays was really um, basically a treatment of rays reflected from arbitrary reflecting surfaces but in homogeneous media. In He then took this, and in part two of his system of rays, he extended it to treat not just reflection, but refraction. So as well as arbitrary mirrors, you could have arbitrary prisms and lenses in the system. And then the big breakthrough was really a very ambitious project. He extended it in the third supplement to consider rays of light traveling through arbitrary systems of mirrors and lenses with uh, crystalline media which could be anisotropic. So things like iceland spar or other crystals which have, um, as we we now know, different polarizations of light travel at different speeds in different directions in these media. And this leads to considerable complications and in fact was the, the key point which enabled him to predict conical refraction. And his whole treatment began from something called Fermat's Principle of Least Time, and if we go back to simply the idea of reflections in a mirror, you all know that the the way light reflects off a mirror is that the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of reflection, but another way of looking at that is to say that the actual path, if you take a a light ray which travels from an initial point X to a final point X prime reflecting off the mirror, then all paths from X to X-prime via the mirror surface, that path is the shortest one. And you can sort of see that instinctively, because if you simply reflect X-prime in the mirror down below, then you can see that the, the straight line is the shortest distance between those two points. So you can express the law of reflection as saying that light takes the shortest path via the mirror from the initial to final point. And remarkably, you can show that exactly the same principle applies to refraction. If you allow for the fact that light traveling through media travels less rapidly than in vacuum or air, uh, you can actually reduce everything to the same principle that the, the light takes the shortest path or the, 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 the shortest time to go from A to B. This is an illustration of how it applies to a lens, I'm sorry there isn't a pointer here, but if you, if you take the, the line that goes straight through the centre of the lens, it's geometrically shorter but it goes through more glass, and in glass the light is slowed down, whereas if you go round the edges of the lens you travel further in air but less distance in glass. And the time taken... If you adjust the thickness of the lens correctly, you can can see that you can make light take the same time through any of these parts. And that basically is how lenses focus. So Hamilton took these ideas and developed a very general mathematical theory out of it. He introduced what he called his characteristic function of a general optical system which is essentially just this the time for light to travel from one point to another through the system along this extremal path and the remarkable result which he pointed out is that if you if you know this complicated function then in principle you know not only the entire optical system ah, thanks Yeah, thanks very much yeah. uh, you have a full description Oops, sorry. Well, it doesn't matter, we, we can get on with that, yeah. Uh, this one function encodes not only the the full specification of the system, but the full specification of all the parts of all light rays through the system. And if you allow the endpoints to vary as well, which Hamilton did, he got what are now called the Iconal equations, and you can see that, for example, the refractive the local refractive index is immediately deducible as soon as you know the characteristic function, and therefore if it's a system of lenses, for example, you know exactly where the lenses are. I'll skip over this a little bit. This is derived from an earlier talk where I wanted to go a little bit more into Hamilton's mathematics, so I won't spend time on this, and I certainly won't spend time on that, but that's typical calculus of variations type calculation, that's for the cognoscenti And so Hamilton derived a very general theory of optics of light traveling in arbitrary media with arbitrary lenses, mirrors, etc., and a theory which describes general properties of any possible optical system within geometrical optics. The key realization then was that mechanics. Uh, he knew from his study of Lagrange, can also be expressed in terms of a principle of least action, that a mechanical system evolves from one state to another through a path which extremises the classical action, the integral of the Lagrangian with respect to time. And it follows that the mathematical structure that Hamilton had developed in his optics could be applied to general mechanics. And the equivalent, for example, of what in optics is called the iconal equations becomes the Hamilton Jacobi equation. Now, you could, this is going a little, little bit philosophical, but you can ask the obvious question how or why does nature choose to do this? I mean, why should you follow the path of stationary action? And the only way, really, that you can know that the action is stationary is to explore all the paths, from the initial to the final state. And remarkably, this, in fact, is exactly what uh, quantum mechanics tells you happens. Uh, Feynman's path-integral interpretation of quantum mechanics is just that, that the mechanical system, if it starts in a state A, the probability of it going from state A to state B is basically um, just the, the modulus of the classical action taken over all possible paths that go from one state to another. And in a sense, nature does actually explore all parts. It combines them with a phase which is proportional to the classical action, and it's the extrema which contribute to that integral because that's where the phases don't cancel out. So in, a, in some sense, quantum mechanics removes what is otherwise a rather unphysical element of the principle of least action. It sort of seems to suggest that there's a directed purpose in mechanics, that somehow the system knows that it should use the principle of least action. And in fact, when it was originally introduced by Maupertuis in the 18th century, uh, Maupertuis actually invoked the principle of least action as a justification for theology. He, his argument was that God would not waste energy and would do things in the most efficient possible way. And it was therefore a proof of the existence of a benign deity that nature used the most effective and efficient way of doing things and in, in, uh, obeyed a principle of beast action. Now, certainly that's not a, a position that we would, many of us would be prepared to defend nowadays. Uh, quantum mechanics, in a sense, gets rid of the benign deity but instead introduces a certain spookiness, uh, which of course was detested by Einstein and Schrodinger, and perhaps it's not appropriate for Halloween to mention this uh, spookiness of quantum mechanics. Uh, There is of course another close connection between quantum mechanics and Hamilton and Hamilton's optics. Hamilton was well aware that geometrical optics was an approximation to wave optics. Uh, Had he taken the unreasonable step of asking, is there a wave mechanics analogous to classical mechanics in the same way that wave optics is analogous, is a limit of classical geometrical optics, he would in many ways actually have anticipated quantum mechanics, but there was no experimental justification for that at the time. When I gave a similar talk to this back in 2005, Iggy McGovern, who is quite a good poet, came up with this little... Uh, ditty. Her Nietzsche said God is dead. Her Drury said that's crazy. My reflection on least action tells me he's just lazy. (laughs) So uh, thank you, Iggy. (laughs) I suppose the key point really is that Hamilton's focus on the deep mathematical structure of systems defined by variational principles has remained at the heart of theoretical physics from his day onwards. It's still the fundamental principle from which we start, Uh, we try and write down the Lagrangian and then derive the equations of motion from that. However, I suppose precisely because this idea is so deep and fundamental and so universal, it's not actually always easy to convey to non-specialists just why this is important, and I hope I've managed to convey some of that in this talk. His other major contribution, of course, is the quaternions. And Hamilton, inspired in part by his attempt to uh, apply Kant's ideas to algebra, had already demystified imaginary numbers, or complex numbers as we call them. He, He said, look, I mean, there's nothing actually imaginary or strange about complex numbers. You can think of them just as pairs of real numbers with these rules for addition and multiplication. And you can check that with those rules... These form a proper algebra, and then it turns out to be a very useful system because they describe a two-dimensional space and geometry in two dimensions very nicely, and there are all sorts of useful applications for that. The obvious question you can then ask is if that works for pairs of numbers, and you can describe two-dimensional geometry very nicely. Is there some way of doing this with triples of real numbers and describing the geometry of the space, three-dimensional space that we occupy? And Hamilton struggled with this for a number of years. Uh, There's a rather charming uh, note in one of his diaries that he used to come down to breakfast and his son would say, Papa, can you multiply triples? And he would shake his head and say, no, I can only add and subtract them. And there's a good reason for this, actually, because, uh, as we now know, there there are actually, it is, in fact, impossible to do what Hamilton was trying to do in three dimensions. He was trying to construct a division algebra, and those only exist in dimensions one, two, four, and in a rather restricted sense, eight. Uh, So he couldn't do it in three. The big leap through was when he suddenly realized he could do it with four numbers, and because there were four, he called them quaternions, the sacrifice he had to make was he had to introduce the idea of a a non-commutative multiplication. A times B was not equal to B times A. This may seem a fairly trivial breakthrough, but up to that point, nobody had dared consider an algebra where uh, you had a non-commutative multiplication rule. And there was a doctrine that any form of algebra had to obey the standard rules of arithmetic. Hamilton was really they led to the breakthrough discovery that no, this is not true. It is actually useful and sensible to consider algebras with other laws of multiplication. And so he, yeah, just uh, again for the cognoscenti, uh, a general quaternion you write in the form of a real part and then. There are three imaginaries, normally called I, J, and K, so B times I, C times J, D times K. Uh, There's Hamilton introduced the terms scalar and vector. Uh, The part A is the scalar part, the rest is the vector part, and in the quaternion algebra, every non-zero element actually has an inverse, the modulus of a quaternion is A squared plus B squared plus C squared plus D squared. And this gives you a very beautiful description of rotations, not actually in three-dimensional space but in four-dimensional space. But of course if you can describe four-dimensional rotations, you can describe three-dimensional rotations because they're embedded in it. So it's actually a, a beautiful representation of the, of the um, orthogonal group in four dimensions. The main scientific breakthrough was, however, the fact that it opened up the idea of non-commutative multiplication and led to a flowering of abstract algebra in a whole area of ranges. The quaternions themselves never achieved the importance Hamilton thought they would. He believed that this was a new language, a new language of mathematics which would be fundamental to our understanding of the world. It's not. It is a very beautiful theory, but it seems to be a somewhat isolated and not terribly useful branch of mathematics. It does have some uses. Uh, It is actually a very efficient way of describing rotations, and in computational geometry it is... There are technical advantages to using quaternions. and for this reason they are used in computer games and satellite navigation. Uh, but in terms of fundamentally changing our view of the world, not directly, but one has to say that the whole vector calculus derives ultimately from Hamilton's quaternions by stripping out the quaternionic structure and just keeping the vector part. And Gibbs and Heaviside uh, deliberately threw away the uh, four dimensionality, kept the bits that were useful for physics. And the vector calculus that every physics student learns today ultimately does derive from Hamilton's quaternions. He also made quite important contributions to graph theory. If anyone has studied graph theory, you'll know about Hamiltonian circuits, which formed the basis for his Icosian game. Uh, he did interesting and significant work on Fourier series. And he improved on Abel's proof that the general quintic was not soluble. But certainly his lasting fame has to rely on the fact that he made these fundamental formulations of optics and mechanics into canonical or Hamiltonian form. And as I say, this this formulation is so fundamental that it has survived the transition from classical to quantum mechanics. Uh, he was fond of a rather flowery form of prose, so uh, just to give you a a taste for his writing, let me just read this one introductory paragraph. Uh, The theoretical development of the laws of motion of bodies is a problem of such interest and importance that it has engaged the attention of all the most eminent mathematicians since the invention of dynamics as a mathematical science by Galileo, and especially since the wonderful extension which was given to that science by Newton. Among the successors of those illustrious men, Lagrange has perhaps done more than any other analyst to give extent and harmony to such deductive researches by showing that the most varied consequences respecting the motions of systems of bodies may be derived from one radical formula, the beauty of their methods so suiting the dignity of the results as to make of his great work a kind of scientific poem." But the science of force, or of power acting by law in space and time, has undergone already another revolution, and has become already more dynamic, by having almost dismissed the conceptions of solidity and cohesion, and those other material ties or geometrically imaginable conditions which Lagrange so happily reasoned on, and by tending more and more to resolve all connections and actions of bodies into attractions and repulsions of points, And while the science is advancing thus in one direction by the improvement of physical views, it may advance in another direction also by the invention of mathematical methods. And the method proposed in the present essay for the deductive study of the motions of attracting or repelling systems will perhaps be received with indulgence as an attempt to assist in carrying forward so high an inquiry. I don't think an editor of a journal would let me write that nowadays, (laughs) Uh, Hamilton was intrinsically a Romantic. I mean, he was highly idealistic, he was a deep admirer of the Romantic poets, and he certainly through all his life considered poetry to be far superior to prose. As I mentioned, to some extent his unhappy love for Catherine was a typically romantic streak to his nature, and German idealism as transmitted through Coleridge, and in particular the philosophy of Kant, was a major influence on his thought. One reason I think his works are so hard to read is that in his mathematics, as he himself said of Lagrange, he tried to write a form of mathematical poetry whereby he captured the maximum amount of of meaning with the minimum actual content. So he, he his technique was to work, do multiple worked examples, distill out an abstract pattern from these and continue distilling this down until he got to what he felt was the absolute essence of each problem. And then he would present that pure essence without any of the methods by which he got to it. So part of the reason why he is so significant is that he did this. I mean he, he would take, he would start from a partic- from the specific and proceed to abstract and abstract until he had got down to what he felt was the absolute essence of it. Um, this of course makes his papers extremely difficult to follow because he presents the final result without showing you how he got there. But also it's also of course the reason why his contributions have been so long-lived and fundamental and there is perhaps a lesson for us there, for today, if we really want to do work which has long-term impact, it is necessary to focus on the deep problems and the underlying structures, and not necessarily on the short-term applications or the immediate issues that give rise to them. Uh, The other lesson I would draw from it is that we need to see science as part of culture, as a creative activity closely allied to the arts and not something which is just a mere hand servant of technology. Thank you very much.